Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every family has an origin story, one passed down through the generations. Mine happens to be a mystery involving my great-great-grandmother left behind in Sicily. I'm Joe Piazza, and my new podcast will transport you to the gorgeous island of Sicily as I trace my roots back through a whodunit for the ages. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways you probably haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Questlove, and Kate Blanchett. In recent weeks, I had talked to actor Dan Levy, director Ava DuVernay, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Rivals is a production of iHeartRadio. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Rivals, the show about music beefs and feuds and long-simmering resentments between musicians. I'm Steve. And I'm Jordan. And today we're going to answer that age-old question, which one's pink? Yeah, and what is a real rock band? Is, is a band defined by who's in the band or is it merely a front for an amazing light show and pigs floating around in the sky and and all of the many beautiful iconography that we associate with the band Pink Floyd. Uh, we're going to be talking about Roger Waters versus David Gilmore in this episode. And I feel like this is like the Ali Frazier of intraband feuds. It's the struggle for control of just an absolutely gargantuan artistic legacy. The money at stake is truly insane. And the public feuding has gone on for like 40 years with no apparent end in sight. I think for me, like why I am so fascinated by this rivalry, and this really is like one of my favorite rivalries, is that I feel like Roger Waters and David Gilmore complete each other artistically I think more than any partnership that I can think of. Like you look at what each guy does well and what their weaknesses are. You just see how well they complement each other in that regard. And at their peak, I think the results speak for themselves. Pink Floyd is one of the greatest and most successful bands of all time. And when they split, their weaknesses are just glaringly obvious. <laughs> and uh, we're really going to dip into that in this episode. I mean, there's a disparity between how much I love Pink Floyd at their height versus how much I don't really like their solo album it is pretty extreme. Well, without further ado, let's get into this mess. I think to understand the feud between Roger Waters and David Gilmore helps to understand how Dave entered the band in the first place. Take it back to the mid-60s in the pre-Gilmore era when the band was led by Sid Barrett, Roger's childhood friend. Uh, Pink Floyd started off as like an R&B group, kind of like adjacent to the Rolling Stones. Their name was famously taken from two blues men, Pink Anderson and Floyd Council. And they were kind of a lazy band when you think about it. Instead of learning new songs, they just would stretch the ones they knew into like these huge, long 10, 15 minute versions. And instead of practicing, they said, you know what, we're just going to like improvise on stage and see what happens, which, you know, for a lot of bands, it doesn't really work out. But for Pink Floyd, that went really well. They kind of became, I'd say, like the unofficial band of the London underground scene. They were playing like really hip clubs like the UFO Club and Middle Earth and the Roundhouse. It's funny, though, their sound didn't really play that well outside of all these hip clubs. They tried to play, a, uh, I think, a Catholic youth club, and the owner refused to pay them because he said what they had done was not music. Did they serve LSD at that Catholic <laughs> youth club? I think that would have helped. Instead of, with, the, instead of the host, yeah. Yeah, I think that. You're right in that the early Pink Floyd was defined by this sort of jammy aesthetic that was also taking hold in America, obviously on the West Coast with bands like The Grateful Dead and Jefferson Airplane. It's really fascinating to see like how those two scenes developed in parallel to each other at that time. But Sid Barrett did develop into 
a really great pop songwriter. Uh, around 66, 67, Pink Floyd starts putting out singles like See Emily Play and Arnold Lane. And of course, they put out their classic debut album, The Piper at the Gates of Dawn, in 1967. And you can really see that Sid Barrett is a writer for his times. Like he's writing these songs at the same time that the Beatles are starting to turn psychedelic with Revolver and then going full blossom with, with Sgt. Pepper. And Barrett can really write in that same sort of style that John Lennon was writing at the time. This style that on one hand is, is very druggy and psychedelic, and then on the other hand, it has a real pop sense. And those songs are really catchy. Um, and it looks like Pink Floyd, as weird as their roots were, they were going to become a genuine sort of pop sensation. The problem, unfortunately, is that Sid Barrett uh, ends up having a serious mental breakdown. And it's a combination of mental illness. It's him basically eating LSD for breakfast at this time, you know, which does not help his mental state. And he's also just reluctant to be a pop star. He doesn't want to fit into that sort of tight formulaic thing. And it all leads to him slowly leaving the band. I mean, is it fair to say that he was fired? I feel like it was one of those things like where they couldn't bring themselves to tell him to go. They had to sort of let him devolve on his own and then move forward as he kind of receded into a corner. I think it was a mix. I think it was a mix of, of terror because he was their primary songwriter and, and lead singer and guitarist and also just sadness. They saw what was happening to their friend and they, they were trying to help him. I think Roger Waters brought him to a, a very famous psychologist, Dr. R.D. Lang, I think his name was, and tried to get him some help. And, and just Sid wouldn't go in. It just was a case of them not wanting to turn their back on their friend, but it got to a point where he was just a liability. They would be on TV shows and try to mime their song, and he would just would stand there, not move his mouth, not move his arms. He'd go be on stage, and he just would detune his guitar. I mean, just all the stories of his, you know, eccentric behavior has gone into legend, and I don't want to glamorize that too much. But yeah, it became a point where they knew he was unwell, but just having him around was a giant liability. So. They brought in David Gilmore, who's another musician on the scene, who's also a friend of Barrett's. I think they, they'd gone hitchhiking together as teenagers. And the idea was almost like a Beach Boys situation. David would be the Bruce Johnston and would, would, would go on stage and, and kind of cover for Sid on stage, where Sid would kind of remain at home, perform when he wanted to, write the songs, do what he wanted to in the studio, and still be a creative force. So there was a brief period of a couple months when they played as a five-piece band. I don't even think it was a couple months. I think it might have been weeks. And things just got worse worse for Sid. I think that he felt on some level resentful that he was being edged out. Or there's the song that he wrote for the band's second album, Saucer Full of Secrets, called Jug Band Blues. And I always thought it was about how Sid felt about this. It's awfully considerate for you to think of me here. And I'm much obliged to you for making it clear that I'm not here. Oh, so, passive aggression right yeah. there, baby. It's really sad. So one day they were going to drive to, they were driving to a show and they had to pick up Sid and they're all in the van and they just said, well, should we just not get him today? And they all said, okay, let's just not get him today. So it was just this very, very gentle parting of the ways, I would have to say. Because they stayed close. I think David and Roger both helped with Sid's solo albums. So as, as friends, they were close. But as a band, by, the, by 1968, they were done together. It's fascinating, though, with Pink Floyd that while Sid Barrett ceased to be you know, an active participant in the band early on, that his spirit ends up being a part of Pink Floyd throughout their most successful periods. Like it seems like the spirit of, of Barrett and what happened to him, just the arc of his story, it ends up being a major thematic concern for, for Pink Floyd, you know, through dark side of the moon, wish you were here. And certainly the wall. I think those three are in their own ways, commentaries on like how the band felt about Sid Barrett and, and how they were haunted by, uh, I think leaving him behind and also just, his mental state and how he deteriorated because he was this very charismatic, good looking, talented guy who ended up, you know, just becoming this recluse, very troubled individual. Uh, and really like one of the great sort of like loner genius legends that exist in rock history. And I always got the impression too, that Roger kind of blamed the pop industry machine that he then would just vent about on so many of his, his future albums, both with Pink Floyd and solo. Yeah, and I think that, that, like you said, it was 
there was an element of almost them fearing that what happened to Sid could happen to them as by, you know, by grace of God, go I. Uh, yeah, I think that fueled a lot of Roger's future resentment too. It, it's also fascinating to sort of wonder what would have happened if Sid had stayed with the group, if they would have continued to mature artistically and pursue the kind of concept stuff and Roger would have maybe taken on a, a role as, as a, more of a dominant creative force, or if they would have kind of been relegated to like a 60s psychedelic curio, like the Soft Machine or the Pretty Things, which are, you know, kind of more cult bands now. Yeah, I, I, I tend to believe the latter. I yeah. think that, I mean, I, I actually really like the Sid Barrett solo records um oh the madcap laps is amazing yeah yeah i think i think it's a great record but there's nothing on those records that suggests to me that he would have led pink floyd to the kind of success that they had without him i think that bringing in david gilmore who was this uh i mean i think he's a fantastic guitarist he's one of my favorite guitarists ever but just what he was eventually able to bring to Roger Waters' lyrics. It was just the perfect combination for what rock music became in the 70s, which was this more sort of stadium rock thing where, you know, it was very sort of bombastic, grandiose music married to very thoughtful theatrical concepts. And Roger and David just fit perfectly in that regard and what, what they were able to do. But, you know, it, it is interesting listening to that middle period. It's not really the middle period. I kind of think of it as the middle period for... For Pink Floyd, even though it's relatively early in their career, but you know, you have that Sid Barrett era, uh, you know, Piper at the Gates of Dawn and the early singles, and then you have Dark Side of the Moon and like just that hugely successful stadium rock run that they had uh, in the 70s. But before that, like between those those two eras, you have these records like where Pink Floyd's really trying to figure out what they're gonna do. And you know, as we said, Sid Barrett was this guy who wrote very tuneful songs that could be stretched out into jams, but could also be played at three minutes in length and, and totally work uh, just as just as pop singles. But really, you know, that run from like Saucer Full of Secrets to Metal, it's like they're really trying to figure out songwriting. And you could tell that they didn't really know how to write songs like for a long time. Like there's some really good songs on those records, but for the most part... You know, they're working in more of like sort of a soundscape type realm, you know, like where they're going off into the stratosphere, writing these sort of space rock jams, but they're not really wedded to anything substantial. And as much as I like those records, there's a little bit of a hollowness to them. Like there's not a whole lot you can grab onto uh, lyrically. I mean, I think with metal, I think a lot of Pink Floyd fans look at that as the turning point, especially the song Echoes. Oh yeah, that pointing toward like what they were able to do on our Dark Side of the Moon. But I feel like what sets Dark Side of the Moon apart from those albums, apart from like the musical brilliance of that record, I mean it sounds amazing. That is a record where uh, it is great head music, but there's also like a lot of catchy songs on that record, like like Money and Time and Us and Them, that you know work on the radio as as standalone songs, but. I feel like Roger Waters' development as a writer is what sets that album apart. And it what gives that album a depth that the other albums don't have. Like, because there's thematic things that you can latch onto with that record. And it just makes it feel deeper uh, than those other records. And especially if you're like an, if you're an alienated teenager, you know, <laughs> I think those that record especially speaks to you. And it's and it's why it's remained to be, you know, such a popular record. Yeah, to your point earlier about sort of the the earlier pre-Dark Side albums where they're finding their way. I mean, a, lo- a lot of those albums, they almost started with a concept. Like Umaguma was every bandmate was gonna get one. This was a double album, I think, where every bandmate was gonna get like one track to write. It almost felt like they knew they needed to make an album, but they they instead of just letting the songs dictate where it was gonna go, they kind of said, okay, they were gonna record an album that was all made from household appliances, which is like, you know, a totally insane idea but they actually had some songs that are, I think, were released as like bonus tracks later. So yeah, I, I felt that around metal and definitely Dark Side was when they actually focused on really making the songs and, and in, in a melodic sense. I feel like Roger uh, brought, as you said, a concept, but David really was contributing more and more at this point of the musical side, which he really hadn't in the prior pre-metal era. He had to be like forced to write songs for the albums where they wanted each bandmate to like take a song. He really wasn't all that comfortable with doing it. But yeah, that marriage of Roger's concepts with with David's melodic sense for Dark Side, I think, really just just is what made it what it was. But the success and and also like I mean, what you were saying about like Amagama, 
you know, the idea, I think in a way they almost like tried to be more of a band early on in that era where they were spreading out songs with all the songwriters and really like with metal, you could start to hear that like waters and Gilmore are starting to take the reins because they are the real composers in that band. And with dark side, it really takes hold that like Roger waters is like the auteur of pink Floyd. And that's going to become a problem. I think for the other guys <laughs> in the band pretty quickly. And you, you can also see that artistically that was, that was really paying off. Like, and it seems in retrospect, inevitable that that was going to happen because the other guys were not, uh, they were not songwriters to the same level. I mean, Rick Wright made some great contributions, but he wasn't as prolific. Oh, I always thought Rick Wright was the unsung hero. I love all of his piano work on Us and Them and, and The Great Gig in the Sky. His stuff actually tends to be my favorite part of Pink Floyd. But but you're right. I mean, Roger from Dark Side definitely onward took on a greater and greater and greater role. And I always thought it was funny that the, the cover of Dark Side of the Moon is uh, white light going through a prism and then becoming diffuse, representing sort of the lack of unity, which is pretty much what happened after Dark Side of the Moon was released. Uh, I think that the absolutely enormous success of the album took the wind out of their sails in a way, because I think they took a look around and realized, well, we got what we want. We realized we don't really actually like each other that much. I think Roger and David later said that they were more like work acquaintances rather than like blood brother old friends. Like Roger and Sid had been old childhood friends, but Roger and David, not so much. And once they achieved what they'd set out to do, I think it, it became harder to tolerate each other and each other's eccentricities and each other's egos more. So I think the success, as you you know, see in so many bands, is what started the decline, too. Yeah, it, there's a great quote from the classic albums documentary about Dark Side of the Moon, where Roger Waters says that when we were making Dark Side, we had a common goal, which was to be rich and famous. <laughs> and, we, you know, once we achieved that goal, you know, there was nothing left holding us together. And when you get to wish you were here, the cracks really start to come into play there. And I, I think at that time, it was pretty clear that, that Waters was going to be a, the dominant person in the band with Gilmore making, you know, vital musical contributions. But, you know, like you said before, like Rick Wright was a big part, I think, of certainly metal and and Dark Side of the Moon, and I think you could point to some of the earlier records as well, like where he was really making his presence felt. And he really starts to fade into the background on Wish You Were Here. Um, right? I mean, I mean, isn't that, I mean, I guess you could say Dark Side of the Moon was the beginning of the end, but it seems like Wish You Were Here, as brilliant as that record is, um, I mean, it really came out of a time like where they were not very happy. They were, you know, as you said, in this sort of post dark side funk, not sure what to do. And they were able to pull it together. But it seems like that record then going into Animals, uh, just the collaboration that they had as a band on Dark Side, it, it, it had totally bro broken down over the course of those two records. Yeah, I mean, on Wish You Were Here was this, was like the first major musical disagreement where I think David wanted... Um, uh, Shine on Your Crazy Diamond to be one piece. And Roger wanted it to sort of bookend the album and have Have a Cigar and Welcome to the Machine sort of in the middle between the two. And, uh, and, and that was a huge sticking point for the two of them. And also... Rick was dealing with, uh, I think he was starting to deal with cocaine addiction at that time. And his, I think Nick Mason's marriage was failing around the time. It was a bad time personally for the band. And Roger would later call the sessions for Wish You Were Here torturous. And I got to um, say that he's right about shinier. I think splitting up that song was the right way to go. Yeah? Yeah, I, I like that as the bookend of that record. We're going to take a quick break to get a word from our sponsor before we get to more Rivals. <laughs> Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers, or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. 
There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course... We'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table because geek culture is pop culture. And we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor! Gene, we'll boot it! Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Gene, and Vlastar on the business. I understand now. He's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Jean. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Jean, run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I think of Roger Waters as like one of the great conceptualists in rock history. You know, someone who I think made the best concept records and also was able to uh, bring that to the stage and, and communicate it to an audience in a really fascinating way. I think ultimately like Pink Floyd ended up making stadium rock about stadium rock. You know, mm. and that certainly comes into play once you get into animals territory and the wall. Certainly. I, I never liked animals much. I always thought that was the moment when Rogers sort of political side took precedence over melody. And I don't know, maybe that's just me. I never got into animals very much. See animals to me is another example of Roger Waters and David Gilmour fusing together beautifully because you're right. That is one of the bleakest records that Pink Floyd ever made, which is saying a lot. I mean, the, I mean, right. animals, animals starts a trilogy of albums where they just get bleaker and bleaker as they go along, you know, from animals to the wall to the final cut. Um, but David Gilmour's guitar playing on animals is beautiful. He plays so many long, guitar solos on that record. Uh, and as much as I appreciate the lyrics on that record, I mean, I am so drawn to David Gilmore's guitar playing, you know, that, that really is like one of my favorite showcases for that, uh, you know, that record in particular. And it, it just seems like as the seventies go on that, you know, Nick Mason's, you know, cause Nick Mason was also like a pretty kick-ass drummer early on. Like he would, he, he'd play like wild fills. He was much more boisterous. His drumming becomes much more restrained where it almost sounds like anyone could be doing it. And like Rick Wright's keyboard playing also just kind of falls back. And it really becomes about Roger Waters lyrics and David Gilmore's vocals and guitar. <laughs> like it really seems like that is what the evolution of Pink Floyd was as the 70s went on. And David got more and more pissed off because I think Animals is a good example, was that all of a sudden the song royalties thing became an issue where, uh, you know, Dogs, it was mostly David's song, took up almost the entire side of the, of the first side of the album, but he received uh, fewer songwriting royalties because 
Roger had, you know, the two-part pigs on a wing and things like that. So they were starting to squabble about like the songwriting royalties too. And who got what kind of space on the album. And even if a song took up a whole album, you know, still technically one song too. So that started to, to come into play too, which is, you know, if you've got musical differences already, you don't want to start squabbling about money too. Well, yeah, there's the musical differences. There's the money squabbling. I think philosophically too, David Gilmore... I think found Roger Waters pessimism oppressive, you know, like he's not as negative about the music industry and about the world in general as Roger Waters is. I, you know, famously there's that story from the wish you were here period where he didn't want to sing on have a cigar because he thought the lyrics were like were beyond the pale. So they got Roy Harper to sing it instead. Um, and that's a great song. I mean, it's kind of amazing that, Roy Harper sounds a lot like David Gilmore on that song. Like I didn't know that that wasn't him singing. Like for oh, the me too. Time. But it's what a wild thing. It's like I we're gonna get somebody outside of the band to sing the song because I don't want to sing it. I just think that's such that speaks to and I never really thought and thought about that for a while. How what a, a wild divergence that period must have been. Right, where Roger, yeah, Roger, you you'd feel like if this were a band where there was maybe more communication going on that Roger Waters would have said like, well, I respect your opinion here. Maybe we, we just won't put the song on the record. Right. But, but his thought was, well, we'll just get somebody else then. Cause <laughs> you know, I like the song and we're, we're going to do it. Um, Which is how we felt about Pink Floyd. I mean, we'll just get, we can get somebody else to make my songs. This is, I am Pink Floyd. These are my songs. This is my vision. And, you know, I mean, later on, when we talk about his solo career too. He, he He's talking about, oh yeah, when I, uh, pros and cons of hitchhiking tour, was is a Pink Floyd show, but instead of Nick Mason on drums, we have Andy Newmark, and instead of like you know David Gilmore on guitar, we've got Eric Clapton, and yeah, it, it's crazy that he just thinks he can just swap out people interchangeably, which gets back to the question of what is a band. Well, and, and I feel like that really starts to come into the fore with the Wall, because that's a record where it really is Waters and Gilmore taking the lead on that record, and like I mean, I, I think Nick Mason plays on it. But like, not, not on every song, not much. Rick Wright is on that. Re- Rick Wright's not even credited on that record. Um, you know, it really was Pink Floyd as, you know, Waters and Gilmore with that record. And of course, you know, we talked about the negativity that Roger Waters had about rock stardom at that time. You know, there's that famous story from the Animals Tour where I think it was the last show. Uh, and it was like this massive stadium tour. And Roger Waters just felt more and more disenchanted. Uh, as the tour went on, there's a story about him like shouting the number of like how many shows were left from the stage. Oh, yeah. Like he would yell, like he would yell eight, and people were like, "What? What does eight mean?" And like he was literally counting the shows until that tour was over. But there was this story about that he would tell later about how there was a fan in the front row screaming at him and like just really excited, and Roger Waters leaned forward and spit in the guy's face, like. This is like a huge Pink Floyd fan. Roger Waters spit at him in the face. And fortunately, you know, Roger Waters understood that this was not a nice thing to do. And it got him thinking about a music piece that explored how rock concerts can be equated to fascism, you know, which is a crazy idea, but like, it's also like a brilliant idea. Uh, And again, like that idea of like making a stadium rock record about stadium rock. Uh, sort of having your cake and eating it too, I think is such a brilliant concept and it totally comes from Roger Waters. And I I, I feel like he was, again, you know, in, in terms of like rock theater, you know, he is one of the pivotal figures uh, for that. But he couldn't do it without someone who was also musically gifted because Waters himself, um, as Gilmore was often you know, happy to point out was, was not that great of a musician. I always got the impression that the people around Roger, especially around this period, just got the, got the idea that he was just moaning all the time, you know I mean? And the co-producer of the wall, Bob Ezrin said that this was Roger's record about Roger for what Roger. And, you know, I mean, the reason Roger took control is debated. You know, Gilmore claims he was just a control freak and just that he forced his way into the center. And then Roger said, well, you know, nobody else was contributing things like Nick Mason and Rick Wright were sidelined by personal issues, drug issues, marriages were falling apart. And David's, I think he said David's lyrics were third rate. He was a third rate lyricist, which is brutal, but not totally inaccurate. Uh, I think that's true. I think (laughs) that'll, and I think that, 
becomes obvious on the later Pink Floyd records that Roger Waters isn't on. Like, look, Roger Waters to me, uh, clearly a difficult person, clearly an egomaniac, maybe even a jerk, if you want to use that term. Um, but I do think that he's one of the great lyricists in, in rock history. And I think about the song Comfortably Numb from The Wall as being like one of his best lyrics, married to some of the most beautiful music that David Gilmour came up with, especially the guitar solos. Like the first solo, I think, is the best David Gilmour guitar solo. Maybe the guitar solo from Time, you would say, could rival that. Ooh, um, I don't know, money money for me. but Money's a great guitar solo too, but I, I just think that the guitar solo from Comfortably Numb, it's like one of the great guitar solos of all time, as far as I'm concerned. And then you have like these beautiful lyrics that Roger Waters is writing. You know, the, the line that always really moves me is the, the part where he says, like, when I was a child, I caught a fleeting glimpse out of the corner of my eye. I turned to look and it was gone. I cannot put my finger on it now. The child has grown. The dream is gone. You know, beautifully used in a Sopranos episode, as all oh, you Sopranos right. heads out there know. Um, but I just look at that song as like the pinnacle of their partnership and what they were able to do together. You know, this song that has like real lyrical substance to it. And yet because of the majestic music, it totally works in like an arena or stadium format. And it just shows what those guys were capable of doing together. And as we'll see, as we get into it, it's also a good counterpoint showing the weaknesses of their work apart, you know, because I think the strengths of that song, you know, are that they were able to complement each other. And when they're not together, it, it, the weaknesses that they each have respectively really come to the fore. I always thought that was sort of their a day in the life. You know, it's kind of the song that John and Paul wrote together, sort of their last big moment of, of, of true collaboration that became, I think their, their artistic high point. And I always thought of comfortably known as kind of the same way for David Gilmore and Roger Waters. It was sort of the last time they really came together in a way that was productive and created something that transcended, I think pretty much almost all their work before it. I think to me, that's the defining Pink Floyd song, I think. Yeah. For sure. And it's also the beginning of the end. And I, in a way, like that lyric I just read, you know, like the dream is gone, you know, <laughs> in a way that is about Pink Floyd, because, I mean, you could argue that they were already done before the wall, because as we said, I mean, that isn't really a band record. There's a lot, there's like a, there's like an army of supporting musicians on that record, which is going to become sort of the standard thing for Pink Floyd records from here on out both with Roger Waters and without. And you know, the craziest thing about just the whole sessions, I feel like a lot of people don't know, is that Rick Wright was fired during it. Like, he was no longer a member of Pink Floyd by the end of those sessions, which is crazy. Of You know, a founding member, all of his contributions to the prior albums, and he was effectively forced out. And they brought him back for the tour. I think that they sort of kept that quiet, that they fired him. But he was brought back essentially as like a salaried employee. Like, he was not an equal member of the band. And I think it like took a while for him to get that status back, even after Roger Waters left. Uh, I think the division bell, I think in the ni early 90s is when he finally was like, welcomed back officially and legally, I think. So like the last Roger Waters record uh, with Pink Floyd ends up being the final cut. And in a way, it, it feels more like a, a Roger Waters solo record to me. Like this is an album that like when I talk to serious Pink Floyd fans, you know, th this album has its defenders. Like, there's a lot of people who think that it's, like, one of the most lyrically profound records that Pink Floyd ever did. I know for me personally, it's not really a record I enjoy listening to. Not only because it's bleak, but it has that thing that a lot of solo Roger Waters records have, which is that there's not a lot of music on it. Like, I'm not yeah. saying, like, the music is bad. I'm saying there's just not a lot of music. Like, it tends to be... Roger Waters murmuring his lyrics like in a low voice and like this sort of ambient noise in the background. And then maybe you get like a smashing drum that comes in in the occasional David Gilmore guitar solo. Um, but I don't know, for me, it's a difficult record. I, uh, how do you feel about it? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I kind of, I approach it with the sort of the way that David did, which was a lot of the songs were originally offcuts from uh, The Wall. They were going to have a, a sort of a, a secondary album called Spare Bricks. And, uh, and then when the Falklands War broke out, um, David decided to basically turn this 
some of these old wall tracks into another concept album that really has a similar plot to the wall too, just anti-war, anti-fascism. And, uh, and David was kind of like, well, wait a minute. Like if they weren't good enough for the wall, why are they good enough now? I, I give me a minute to work on some songs. I really want to kind of contribute to this. And apparently Roger was like, well, no, I'm on a roll. I'm going to go do with this. You can either be a part of it or not make a choice. I, yeah, I, I find it to be really, it's not something I listen to for pleasure. I'll put it that way. It's not something I put on like, you know, wish you were here or I could just have it on the background and, and feel anything approaching good. Uh, it's definitely interesting though. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, it, it's one of those albums that I keep waiting to fall in love with because yeah. people that I respect really love that record. And I love Pink Floyd. I would love to love another Pink Floyd record and hopefully I'll get there uh, with the final cut. But yeah, when I listen to it, it, it feels less connected to the wall musically than it does feel connected to the pros and cons of hitchhiking, which mm-hmm. ends up being the first Roger Waters solo record that comes out in 1984. And that was originally a record that he had written around the same time as the wall. And he pitched both records to the band. He said like, which one do you want to do? What, you know, which, which set of songs? And they decided to go with the wall, which I think was the right decision. Yeah. Um, although, you know, again, like the pros and cons of hitchhiking, if I'm listening to it while reading the lyrics, it's a very impressive record. It's like one of these records like where, you know, you know, the idea of it is that it's this guy dreaming uh, in bed and he's having like this series of essentially like sexual dreams. It's like a married guy and it's like these fantasies and it's like dreams within dreams. And it's very complicated. Uh, it like takes place in real time too. Like all the songs have like the time in the morning that he's dreaming right. that incident. Yeah. It's very clever, but again, like musically, it um it, there's a lot lacking. It, and Roger Waters, of course, his voice isn't all that great. Um and yeah, I if it had come out as a book, I think I would have appreciated it more than as an album. I always um, find myself like waiting for the song to begin. You know what I mean? Like, it's a terrible thing to say, but... Yeah, lots of murmuring. Again, like that kind of murmuring, quiet voice and kind of like ambient, very slow music. And uh, not any of the, like, sort of Beatlesque grand guitar music that you associate with with Pink Floyd. And it's interesting. It's an interesting point of comparison because around that same time, David Gilmour put out his second solo record, which is About Face, and um, which sounds a lot like Pink Floyd. It sounds more like Pink Floyd than the final cut does. Um, and it's a record that I go back to a lot because I really enjoy it uh, musically. But lyrically, I, I couldn't name one lyric from it. You know, like it, 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 there's not any of the depth that you expect from like a great Pink Floyd record. It's just great David Gilmour guitar playing. Um and it really kind of hewing close to the formula that that fans of that band like. The lyric I do know from that album that I love because it's just for you know our purposes is you know I'm right, which is kind of like his how do you sleep style like dig towards waters where he says you know you can scream and shout with all your might, dig in your heels and hold on tight. Either you're wrong or I'm right. We really seem to have a problem here, but is it you or me? Uh, I, I always thought that was directed pretty obviously at, at Roger. You know, but like if Roger Waters could have written his own diss, I think it would have been more memorable. Like I, I wish that Roger Waters could have written a mean song about Roger Waters for David Gilmour for that record. <laughs> you know, because like David Gilmour, you know, like he's not as good at being mean or as, as being no. clever lyrically as, as Roger Waters is. Um, but again, like to me, like that is the great dichotomy that, will exist with these two guys' work from here on out that, you know, one guy's going to write great lyrics and have great kind of conceptual ideas. And again, I think the pros and cons of hitchhiking is a great idea. It's very clever. And I really appreciate how well that album is constructed lyrically, but musically it it's lacking. And then you have Gilmore who has great music, but lyrically it's lacking. It doesn't have the great concepts that you hope for from, from Pink Floyd, but in a way you can really see that David Gilmore is going to win this fight. Uh, and it's interesting, like how that ends up t- uh, turning out uh, for Pink Floyd. And it really starts to turn bad for Roger when he leaves the band in 1985. Cause like it was his choice to leave. Like he wasn't fired. Right. Yeah. I think it was just, the, he didn't want to do Pink Floyd albums anymore. And I think that he 
in order to get out of that contract and not and not have to do it anymore, he had to resign from the band just so that he yeah, so he could get out of it and not get sued by CBS. But I think he he truly thought that when he left, Pink Floyd would be over. He was Pink Floyd, and he had all the ideas, and the band would just you know collapse. And um, and that may have been the case for a short period, but uh, I, I would imagine that when David's solo disc didn't do so hot, uh, Pink Floyd's a pretty reliable source of income. So he decided to carry on as Pink Floyd, David Gilmour did. And Roger was absolutely furious and he took legal action to try to prevent David and the rest of Pink Floyd from carrying on. Uh, turned out he had no legal right to do that. So he basically, he famously said that uh, Pink Floyd was a spent force creatively without him, which is... Uh, you know, a, a brutal thing to say to your your, your three former bandmates. Um, and I don't uh, think I don't think he was wrong though. I think he I I don't think that's wrong. But what he didn't count on was that people didn't that, care. Is that people didn't care exactly, and that this and that what people associate I think first with Pink Floyd is the sound of David Gilmore's voice in his guitar, and not necessarily the lyrics and. The thing about Pink Floyd is that they were one of the bands that most successfully sort of de-emphasized the fame aspect of being in a hugely successful rock band. Like they weren't like the Rolling Stones, like where it was about, you know, the front man out front dancing around and being a superstar. It's like these were four average looking guys who hid behind their music and, and like a great sort of visual live show. And you just wonder like how many people even knew who Roger Waters was, you know, like casual fans, you know, I, it seems like as we move forward that like that was not something that a lot of people were either aware of or that they even cared about. And it's interesting too, because the, the resulting Pink Floyd album, a momentary lapse of reason was I think the first Pink Floyd album in maybe since Adam Hartmother, I forget which one, but it's something like 20 years, 15 years that had a picture of any members of the band on it. They had a picture of, uh, of David and Nick, who at that time were the only two legal members of Pink Floyd. Rick was still not legally welcomed back. What do you think of Momentary Lapse of Reason? I, it tends to get, it did phenomenally well as, you know, a Pink Floyd album would, but it's been dismissed by pretty much everybody involved. And Roger called it a, a poor forgery. Uh, but <laughs> even, uh, even Gilmore would be like, all right, yeah, this project was kind of hard without Roger, you know, he didn't have his creative direction. It was the first album in, in, in many that didn't really have a concept behind it. And they had all these writing contributions for lyrics from all these outside lyricists. And it, it to me, it didn't really hang together. There's not really all a unity to it. But what did you think of it? Yeah, I think it's a pretty clunky record. I'm, I'm actually a fan of The Division Bell, like the, the record that came after this. I think that's like a pretty good record. Although I tend to think of it more as a David Gilmore solo record than as a Pink Floyd record. Um, but yeah, like about face, for instance, I think it's much better than momentary lapse of reason. Um, and I think all those things that you just mentioned, like all the contributors to the record, the lack of cohesion, it just makes it sound like a band really trying hard to be Pink Floyd, but like without a really strong sort of driving force at the center, even though I think Gilmore again, musically, um, has some nice flourishes on that record, like learning to fly, I think has some nice moments and like one slip is a solid song, but it seems like ultimately that record was an excuse to tour for Pink Floyd because I mean, they really hadn't done a major tour since animals because they did that wall tour, but it was in only select cities. And I think they only did about 20 shows and then they didn't tour behind the final cut. And it just seemed like there was a perfect storm for people who grew up loving Pink Floyd but never had a chance to see them. And now there's this record that came out that's okay, but it's like, oh, wow, Pink Floyd's going to be at a stadium near me. I really need to see them. And I mean, that tour just did phenomenal. And the really tragic part is that Roger was touring his album Radio Chaos at the same time, sometimes in the same cities at the same time. And Roger is playing much, 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 much smaller venues. And obviously that didn't sit well with him. And he apparently would threaten legal action against stadiums who were advertising Pink Floyd tours. He was still, this was in the midst of their lawsuit over the name. And he was absolutely irate. And, you know, because he's, the whole premise of his argument is, what are you talking about? I am Pink Floyd. He These, the, the light shows that I have and all the, the 
concepts that I have. That that's all the stuff that you love about Pink Floyd is what I brought to it. Those are just the guys that I had play my songs. Can I just like read to you from the liner notes of Radio Radio Chaos? Like because <laughs> yeah. Roger Waters, he writes like the plot of the album in the liner notes, and uh, I'll just read an excerpt here. He says, "Benny is a Welsh coal miner. He is a radio ham. He is twenty three years old, married to Molly. They have a son." Young Ben, age four, and a new baby. They look after Benny's twin brother, Billy, who is apparently a vegetable. The mine is closed by market forces. The male voice choir stops singing. And I'm going to stop reading this because I know people are listening to this podcast while driving, and I don't want want anyone to fall asleep (laughs) while reading this. It's just like, it's so dense. It's so, there's so many details. And like, in a way, I I really respect it. It's It's a tremendous imagination on Roger Waters' part. But I just have this thing in my mind of like, oh, what if David Gilmore could have written some cool guitar parts for Radio Chaos? And that could have been a Pink Floyd record, you know, and and just de-emphasize the lyrical density of that record and and just make it more musically engaging. I think that would have been a much better record than what Radio Chaos ended up being and what Momentary Lapse of Reason was. You know, because again, I think Radio Chaos is is an interesting idea. It's just that like Roger Waters didn't have the sort of musical acumen to make it more fun to listen to. Yeah, I want the premise. Like, just tell me the premise, but actually sitting down to go through it is just, it's an ordeal. And I, and I, <laughs> you know, I, I wanted to like it so bad. I revisited it to prepare for this and I just, I could barely get through it. Yeah, it's, it's a tough listen. Uh, you know, again, I, I've come to appreciate his solo records more uh, over the years, but yeah, they don't have that, again sense of sweep and majesty that you expect from Pink Floyd. All right, hang on. We'll be right back with more Rivals. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course... We'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table because geek culture is pop culture. And we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Delve into the visceral world of hip-hop with the Gangster Chronicles podcast that aims to unravel the intricate tapestry of one of music's most influential and misunderstood subgenres, gangster rap. Hosted by MC8 and Big Steels every Thursday, each episode provides an in-depth exploration into the formative artists, monumental albums, and socio-political factors that have shaped gangster rap from its emergence in the 80s to its enduring impact today. Gangster Chronicles unpacks the evolution of this uniquely American art form. We dive into the socio-cultural aspects that gangster rap boldly addressed, from police brutality to systemic racism, offering listeners a comprehensive understanding of the profound cultural significance this genre holds. Listen to the Gangster Chronicles on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's go. 
so there's somewhat of a detente on Christmas Eve, appropriately, in 1987. David and Roger convene for a summit on David's houseboat, which is probably the least rock and roll sentence that we've ever said on this <laughs> uh, podcast. Uh, and the arrangement kind of gave Dave and Nick the freedom to make music under the name Pink Floyd, while Roger retained the copyright to the wall concept and the inflatable animal's pig. That was, was a big deal for him. Right? Yeah. Didn't he try he to, loves like, that sue? pig. Yeah, he tried to like sue Pink Floyd, like the post-Waters Pink Floyd, from using that pig. And then Pink Floyd got around it by attaching testicles to it to say that it was a different right. pig. Which is, and that pissed yeah. him off big time, too. That was like a huge troll move by Gilmore. So, you know, <laughs> I'm glad we give got him that some credit there. for that. Yeah. But then they end up having, you know, there's like this long gap that occurs you know, from the late 80s until they end up having this reunion at Live 8 um, in the mid-aughts. And um, I remember watching that and being, like, beyond pleasantly surprised by how well it came off. They ended up playing four songs, I believe. It was, like, Comfortably Numb, Wish You Were Here. Um, I'm trying to remember the other songs. I mean, it was basically, like, the greatest hits run. Um, but they sounded really great. And it automatically started, you know, getting people talking about like whether they would end up doing a reunion tour or not, which if that could have happened, I feel like that would have been maybe the biggest tour of all time. Like oh if you could have gotten those guys back together. Um, I mean, do you remember, did you watch that? Oh yeah. That I remember getting, I remember thinking, Oh my God, I, Hope they tour. I hope they tour. And, and there are all these reports about them getting offered, like, I think they were offered 136 million pounds, which is like, you know, almost $200 million to, to tour. Uh, it sounded incredible. And they, I thought they seemed like they were getting along pretty well. They looked like they liked each other. They hugged at the end. It was, it was very sweet. Yeah. I mean, like Roger Waters, like he addressed the audience and he, you know, he said like, it's quite emotional standing up here with these three guys after all these years, standing to be counted with the rest of you. We're doing this for everyone who's not here. And particularly, of course, for Sid, you know, like another acknowledgement of, of, of Sid Barrett. Yeah, I mean, they just sounded great. You feel like if they could have done a tour, it would have been amazing. But sadly, you know, Rick Wright died, I think, what, like maybe three years after that or so? Yeah, Rick Wright died. And, and David basically said, you know, Roger was actually willing to do it. He was saying, you know, I don't know if I'm going to do a whole tour, but if we want to go and do some charity gigs and stuff, I'm, I'm all for it if you want to get back together. And David kind of said, you know what? This this was good for me. We're, we're we're done. I guess they were squabbling during rehearsal about you know the songs to play, and it's still all those old wounds were were, were still there. Uh, so at this point, it was David kind of putting his foot down. I think he had a solo album due out the next year, and he's just like, "Nah, I'm busy. I'm doing my own thing. Been there, done that with Roger. Like, you know, getting a semi-apology out of Roger for the whole name lawsuit thing was like kind of the highlight of it for him. What's interesting to me about Roger Waters, like in the past say ten years, is that. He has become the new Pink Floyd substitute, you know, like like the David Gilmore version of Pink Floyd. You know, they put out the Division Bell in 1994 and they do like a hugely successful stadium tour. And then that's basically it for Pink Floyd. You know, you know, they put out that record, The Endless River, you know, a couple years ago, which was basically Division Bell outtakes, you know, and they put out box sets from time to time. But, you know, they are, in essence, a defunct band. So now you have Roger Waters stepping into this void because Pink Floyd is still a tremendously popular band. There's a huge demand to see this music perform live and all that. And he's now become the substitute for like the, you know, the people that want to hear that music in an arena or a stadium and, and see the grand spectacle, you know, be performed. You know, and he's done all those tours for the wall. You know, he's done like dark side of the moon tours, he toured behind uh, his own record that he put out last year, which I can't remember the name of, but it's like a pretty it's, good is record. Is this the life we really want? I think is this the life we really want? Yeah. I like that record, and actually. It's a good record. And I saw that tour, and it was amazing because uh, he was touring with this guitar player named Jonathan Wilson, who is a great singer, songwriter, a great record producer. He's worked with Father John Misty and Dawes and lots of other groups. Jonathan was basically playing David Gilmore in this band. And he even has like long hair and a beard. He's a blonde guy. Uh, and he could sing just like David Gilmore. And he played those Gilmore solos note for note. 
Like there were, there was no improvisation at all. And it just struck me that like, yeah, like he's now giving people that Pink Floyd experience that they can't get from like the band branded as Pink Floyd. Um, so in a way, it seems like these guys have achieved a measure of peace. Although I, I, mean, I just saw an interview recently that Roger Waters did with Rolling Stone, like where he alluded to having some trouble with David Gilmore. I mean, it seems like they're still sniping at each other behind the scenes. Oh, oh, it's it's so sad. Like now they're fighting about the Pink Floyd website, which is like, you know, like 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 ex-boyfriend or girlfriend like fighting over like the Netflix password or something. I guess like David Gilmore won't let Roger advertise some of his projects, like the concert film Us and Them in this case on the Pink Floyd website. And he said, oh, David wants to, David thinks he owns Pink Floyd now. You know, I left the band in 1985. He's trying to scrub all my, all my accomplishments from the band, from the band's website. And yeah, it's really, it got really petty recently. I think it was just like a month or two ago too. So, this is the part of the episode like where we look at the pro sides for each side of the rivalry. And with David Gilmore, I think it's fair to say that Pink Floyd would not have become the stadium band that they became if Sid Barrett had remained the lead singer. You know, we talked about this earlier in the episode. I, I think that Gilmore's entrance into Pink Floyd really helped usher them into the 70s because of his voice and his guitar playing. It just made them a band better suited for playing those large spaces. And I think it also ended up fusing perfectly with what Roger Waters was going to be doing lyrically that for sort of the grandiosity of the lyrics that he was writing Gilmore's music and, and, and what he did as a guitar player, it just added the perfect compliment to that. And I'll just say generally too, and you know, we've talked about this before, you know, previously that for me, David Gilmore projects are just more immediately satisfying. You know, I can put on a David Gilmore record, like about face, which again, if, if Pink Floyd fans, if you haven't heard that record, to me, it is like the best Pink Floyd record of the eighties. Like, you know, at least in terms of just like delivering like tuneful songs delivered in that sort of familiar Pink Floyd style. Um, I, I just think that he's, he's like the candy of Pink Floyd. You know, he's hmm. the guy that is giving you like what you want maybe most immediately while Roger Waters is maybe giving you the, the, the vegetables, <laughs> you know, to, <laughs> to, to be a little bit more sustaining. But I mean, that would be my case for David Gilmore. I mean, I think that again, that would be my case for David Gilmore, his vocals and his guitar playing. Those are the sonic signatures of this band. And it's why they were able to successfully continue even without Roger Waters, the auteur at the center. Yeah. You know, Roger would have all these incredible cinematic concepts, but I think that David's music was just was cinematic in its own right too. And it needed that. And now, like you said, I mean, his, his solo albums read like film scripts that haven't been produced, you know, it just, it feels a lot more like you need that extrasensory element that David contributed. I mean, he's better singer, better musician. Uh, I mean, and just, you know, I always think of those four notes on Shine On You Crazy Diamond, just the, you know, the da, 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 da. Incredible. Just the emotion in just those four notes, the, how haunting it sounds, how haunted it sounds, just lonely. You know exactly, even if you don't know the Sid backstory, it just, it's so unsettling and so crazy what he's able to do with economy of notes. And it, it's, I, yeah, I, I really think that he, he is the band's primary mouthpiece. And no matter who came up with the concepts, I think that his his role, he will always be the one that people think of uh, for that reason. Um, and I just think that just almost like attitude wise in the band, I always think of Roger as kind of being this really tempestuous, fiery person. I think of, of Roger just sort of being a a, 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 a chilling influence, if you know what I mean? Like he just seems like to be this Zen guitar god who could maybe diffuse situations in the studio that, that did get a little heated and which undoubtedly they did. I mean, Roger or um, Rick got fired. So yeah, I just feel like personality wise too, he probably was responsible. I mean, this is just amateur psychologist, but uh, for diffusing a lot of situations that could have ended a lot badly and maybe ended the band even sooner. He's definitely the guy you'd rather hang out with. You know, yeah. he definitely seems like the better hang. Go, go, go grab a pint with David Gilmore at the pub and talk shit about Roger Waters. Uh, that sounds like a pretty fun night. 
Speaking of Roger Waters, though, the pro case for him, you know, as difficult as he is and as much of an ego egotist as he seems to be, in my opinion, he is, again, one of the great lyricists in rock history. And I think he's like maybe the best conceptualist. And, uh, you know, as I said before, I, in terms of, you know, rock theater, his contributions, I think, are as significant as anybody's. Uh, you know, Pink Floyd made arena rock records about arena rock at a time when punk rockers were, you know, taking shots at Pink Floyd as dinosaurs, I mean, none of those people wrote about the downsides of rock and sort of the fascist overtones of like rock concerts more incisively than Roger Waters. And then he was able to actually turn those observations into arena rock entertainment, uh, which again, I, I just think that's such a masterstroke. And it's what adds to the richness of those records. And as much as I love David Gilmour's guitar playing and his voice and what he was able to bring to the band musically, I think if Pink Floyd Records didn't have that element, they wouldn't be as rich as they are now. You know, like I love the band Yes, for instance. You know, I think they're a great 70s prog rock band. Uh, but they don't go as deep as Pink Floyd because they don't have a Roger Waters. You know, they're writing songs about unicorns and wizards and things like that, you know. <laughs> Whereas you can listen to the great Pink Floyd records and they're as relevant now as they were then. I mean, come on, The Wall? I mean, that album could have been written about 2020. You know, Dark Side of the Moon could have been written about 2020. And there's not a lot of rock records that you can say that about. Um, so I think Roger Waters definitely deserves his fair share of the credit for that. Um, and again, he was the auteur of this band. And when he left and he called the band a spent force creatively... I think he was right. You know, it, unfortunately, though, he had a lot to do with them being a spent force creatively. And if he could have found a way to work with David Gilmour, maybe they could have stayed together longer and made more music. I had a really interesting comparison of Roger Waters to Walt Disney, which I, I never would have thought of on my own. Was, Walt Disney was sort of this medium talented visual artist who was just this conceptual genius and just created, took this medium that he worked in sort of not super successfully at and then created these huge spectacles, like first animated films and theme parks and just made this, it turned it into a grand art form that didn't really exist, I think, before he created it. And I think that's an interesting way to think of Roger Waters too. Um, that's good. I, I and, like that idea. And, I'm just thinking you know, of like, I'm, I'm thinking of like Waters World with like, you know, like those crazy... <laughs> drawings from the wall like just terrifying oh, children <laughs> just like, yeah, like, like a parade in main street with like the marching hammers and stuff oh yeah. man <laughs> and it, it's just interesting too i mean you know billy corgan gave this rant interview like 10 years ago where he's just ranting about like nostalgia acts getting out there and, and playing all their old songs and one of the only acts that kind of avoids that he singles out is actually doing it right and playing their old songs in a way with meaning was Roger Waters he was talking about the wall so, so much of Roger's work just it doesn't do because what you said it could have been written about 2020 and he's so good at taking some songs from 40 years ago and it, applying it to concepts that are in the world now. I mean, the, the wall being a great example for the, the, the border crisis and uh, Palestinian conflict. And Pigs was originally written about Mary Whitehouse, who was a BBC censor. But now he sings about White House. People think it means the White House. It's just, it's interesting how, yeah, his work is so easily applicable to many different times and many different eras when there's, I mean, the sad part is if he's writing songs that are about, you know, oppression, uh, there's awful lot of oppression that's still going to be going on for the last 40 years. So it's depressing that his works are as relevant as they are, but you know, we do need them. So when we talk about these two guys together, I feel like we've hit upon this point repeatedly in this episode, but again, for me, Roger Waters and David Gilmore, there's no better example of, of a partnership where the two guys complement each other as perfectly, you know, even like Lennon McCartney, those guys were capable of writing on their own and doing great work on their own. And even in the Beatles, they often did write on their own. And then maybe one guy would help out polish, polishing a song at the end or something. But with, with Waters and Gilmore, you just feel like, man, it was like peanut butter and jelly, you know, like they completed <laughs> each other. It was uh, in, in a way that I think few partners did. And it's great that they were able to keep it together as long as they did. But again, I feel like, especially Waters, if he could have just appreciated what Gilmore brought to the table, 
you feel like there could have been a few more brilliant Pink Floyd records that we could all be enjoying right now. Yeah, I mean, I always thought it was it was sort of the musician and the genius, the storyteller and the craftsman. Roger Waters is this conceptual genius whose you know huge ego pushed the band to pursue these grandiose projects that really raised the bar for what a rock production could be. But you also have David Gilmour, who's this sort of Zen guitar god with this amazing gift for melody, and it was the combination of the two that gave Pink Floyd their magic. Yeah, I think without the the sort of Roger Waters just sort of sounds like a bitter, uh, you know, railing against the uh, the establishment. And David Gilmore kind of is some of the solo records sort of sound like spa music, you know. I mean, it, it together, <laughs> it's it's yeah. You need them. You need them both. Well, I just want you to know, Jordan, that I appreciate what you do for me, how you complete me, and without you, I would just be numb. But <laughs> with you, I'm comfortably numb. So I appreciate that. You know, it's always going to be us and them. <laughs> Well, on that note, I think it's time to sign off. So thank you again for going over this rivalry with us here on this show. We'll be back with more Rivals next week. Rivals is a production of iHeartRadio. The executive producers are Sean Titone and Noel Brown. The supervising producers are Taylor Chacoin and Tristan McNeil. I'm Jordan Runtog. And I'm Stephen Hyden. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every family has an origin story, one passed down through the generations. Mine happens to be a mystery involving my great-great-grandmother left behind in Sicily. I'm Joe Piazza, and my new podcast will transport you to the gorgeous island of Sicily as I trace my roots back through a whodunit for the ages. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways you probably haven't heard from them before. So my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Questlove, and Kate Blanchett. In recent weeks, I had talked to actor Dan Levy, director Ava DuVernay, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.